You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Wednesday, the 23rd of March, 2022. Thank you all for tuning in. On today's program, we're going to be looking at Westminster Large Catechism. We're going to be continuing off question 93. Uh, it's been about a month. If anybody's been following the Westminster Large Catechism questions that we've been sometimes doing on the program, it's been about a month. Last episode done on this was episode 469. If you want to go and get a radio, find that last one. I think something's wrong slightly with the levels. Anyway, so... Um, for now on, the program's going to be podcast only. And what I'm going to do is, over the next however many months, be that one month, two months, however many months before, between now and potentially and hopefully receiving a call from a congregation. I will be putting up whatever podcasts, whatever teachings or whatever (laughs) kind of come to mind or whatever's prepared anyway. There won't be any particular day that they'll be going up. And um, they'll just be put up as they're recorded, more or less, uh, usually. And I'll try and put up as many, just trying to get topics that I've been meaning to cover for a while done between now and probably the end of next month. There's not really much time left over. However, a lot of it just depends on if and when a call comes in. For those of you not aware, I am available for a call to a congregation from the 1st of May, uh, 1st of May next, and, and yeah, like, I'm a licentiate of a presbytery, and that's, that's the stage I'm at at the moment, so once a call comes in, the program is going to be basically shelved completely, and right now, taking the live element out just kind of frees up a few things, and also taking the schedule things out of it, so, but if you, long and the short of it is, if you've got any things you would like me to cover on the program between now and the end of April. I suppose that's probably the safest time. Just email me, radio at gmail.com. That's M-E-G-I-D-D-O, radio at gmail.com. So we're going to be looking at a topic I've been meaning to look at for a while, ever since we stopped the last topic on the Westminster Larger Catechism. We went up to question 92 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, the last, one, last question we looked at. Why did God at first reveal unto man as... What did God at first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? And that brought us on to question 93. We'll be starting from 93 onwards. And looking at the moral law, and... I'm going to go through the, the, the questions and answers, comment on it, but I also want to look at some of the, the scriptural justifications for having this distinction between 
the the ceremonial and the moral law. Now, the, the there's also the judicial law, which I may touch upon, but it's not really there's it's not really what I'm going to be covering here. Uh, the judicial law is like the the death penalties that was given to Israel as a nation, and then they're basically no longer binding and enforcing. They're a general principle that's in the Westminster Catechism, uh, Confession of Faith. But it's not every single death penalty handed to every nation on earth. So that's the judicial law. But then there is... In distinction to that, for example, the death penalty is given in Genesis 9-6. That's before, before Israel as a nation. That's given to all the nations of the earth. So, for example, Genesis 9-6 is different to the judicial laws that largely came from Exodus 20 onwards. Be that Leviticus or whatever. So we're not going to be dealing with that per se, but just the, in principle, the difference between the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, and notice how it says summarized, it's not the totality of everything going to be said about the law. For example, thou shall not kill is also includes a command to preserve life, the positive aspect of that, but it's summarized in thou shall not kill. Um, it's not good enough that you just say, well, I have nothing to do with killing that person. Well, you're breaking that commandment if you have not done something to preserve life that is within your ability or grasp or whatever. So, so the Ten Commandments are a summarization of the moral law. They have been written with the finger of God. Obviously, we're talking here not in God's little finger. God doesn't have body parts. But to distinguish the moral law from the ceremonial, the outward displays of the law, be that sacrifices, be that the ceremonies, and the, and the ceremonial law was the gospel. Very much a picture form of the gospel. Uh, there was a substitute, an innocent substitute, killed in place of another. So that another, God's people, could be forgiven. And that sacrifice... There's lots of different types and shadows of that perfect sacrifice of the cross. But that sacrifice is a sweet-smelling aroma before God, as opposed to the stench that sinners are before God because of their law-breaking. So the ceremonial law given to Israel types and shadows Yes, cancelled 
in the New Covenant and New Testament era. But the, the moral law being different to that, the ceremonial law very much an outward expression of our keeping of the moral law. And again, trying to remember that the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, not only is that the only way it's summarized, it's also summarized in you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the first four commandments summarized down further, you could say, in the New Testament. It's not the first time it's done like that. It's It was done like that in the Pentateuch as well. But more clearly summarized. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's another way of... And that is commandment five, honor your father and your mother, all the way down to thou shalt not covet. Another way, you could think of the law of God, because people really struggle with this. They struggle with the idea of obedience and love. They're not at odds with each other. Obedience to God, the, the Ten Commandments, is what love looks like. It is God's moral character. God is love. First table summarized in love to God. Second table of the law summarized in love to neighbor. You could say the whole law is summarized in this love. God is love. And God defines what is love. He is the source of all goodness, all love. So it's not one or the other. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Because that is what love looks like. If you say you love and you don't obey, obviously from the heart. Obviously from the heart. Um, a hypocritical, outward, external, quote-unquote, keeping of the law is not a keeping of the law at all. And the Israelites, or the, you know, the Jews were told this in Isaiah chapter 1. And God took no pleasure in... Their keeping of the outward ceremonial law, but in their hearts were far from them. So, and actually, in such a case where there is a lack of love toward God and toward neighbor in a proper lived out sense, and it's purely hypocritical, purely for show, then that keeping of the outward ceremonial is a stench before God. But you would never say that keeping of the moral law is a stench before God. The moral law, you could also call it the eternal law. The eternal law. Because it's God's character. And it has been written on man's heart because man has been created in the image of God. And it's why man has a conscience. Now, man has fallen and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He fights against that. Romans 
But it doesn't negate the fact, it doesn't reject the fact that man has a conscience. And we can see that in other places like Romans 2.15 and other places like that. Okay. That by way of introduction. So let's look at question 93 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the moral law? What is the moral law? The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. The moral law, again, is essentially God's character. God is the standard, his righteous standard, his moral standard is the standard by which we will all be judged because he is what it means to be good. What did Jesus say, you know, when he was called good teacher? Why do you call me good? There is only one good, that is God. So here is the very character of God. It is, as it says here in the Catechism, question 93, it is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto. That's what's demanded of us. And, and those demands are not reduced because of our fallen nature at all. Now, God is merciful. God is gracious. But this is what the, the law of God, the moral law of God demands of us. In the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body. Perfect, personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience is commanded. Now, we fail. And there's not one moment of our lives that we have obeyed the law perfectly. But Christ obeyed this law. He obeyed perfectly, personally perfectly, and he kept the law in every single point in our behalf. And it says in question nine, answer 93, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness, which he oweth the God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. Now, that might scare some people, promising life upon the fulfilling. You say, oh, there's only one way to know God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, but if you look at many statements throughout the Bible, sometimes it can sound like, well, if we keep the law, then you've got to realize that it is the, the righteous and the just and the perfectly holy can create the image of God, can come into the presence of God. And that is a way 
for life. Now, here's the thing. Before I lose anybody and before anybody thinks I'm saying you can earn your salvation, you can't, of course, because the fact is we're all fallen, every single one of us. We have Adam's sin even. We have been born sinners. So none of us can. If you have a a hypothetical person out there who's kept the law in every single perfect place, yeah, there's life promised to it. But anybody who's broken the law, well, there's no promise of life. There's a promise of death. You know, people call it the covenant of works from prior to the fall. Since the fall of Adam, in Adam all die. Only Christ has been the one who satisfied the terms of life for his people. Now, you say, can salvation be earned? Only one has ever done that. Only one has had those perfect work from beginning, middle, and end. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did it on our behalf. So that's the promising life upon the fulfilling. Life has been promised through Jesus Christ. So, we've got to realize we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of our works, but of the works of another. The work, the perfect work of Jesus Christ, the perfect law-keeping of Jesus Christ, the perfect submission of Jesus Christ, the perfect love of Jesus Christ. And then it says, and threatening death upon the breach of it. God must look upon us as it as a person who is righteous, who has kept the law. And the only way that is possible, it's not just, yeah, we have sinned, yes, but we are also commanded to keep the law. How do we do that? We can't. It's only in Christ. It's not just that, oh, you've made a mess of your life. No, we have not only made, we've all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we haven't kept the law of God. And that positive, personal, perfect, perpetual righteousness, that, that obedience that is required of us, declared by the law of God, is only met, those, those, that standard is only met in Jesus Christ. So rather than bringing, dragging that standard down, kicking and screaming, and say, well, God accepts you, da, da, da. We've got to point out on what basis anyone is accepted before God. It is perfect holiness. The the only way to come into his presence is clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, clothed in, in holy garments. Otherwise, the only thing he has for you is wrath, anger, holy hatred. Because you're an object of wrath outside of Christ. And it just... This should make us cease from any attempt to trust ourselves. Any attempt. Because we see the perfection that is required, and even if we we can't contribute a hair's breadth to that. Don't drag down the moral law. We fail to keep the moral law, but we seek to obey it, realizing also at the same time 
or trust in another who kept that law in our place. Now, the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments is an eternal law. It never goes away. None of those commandments go away. In eternity, it's not going to be acceptable to, to, to covet or to, to sin in any way, shape, or form. The Sabbath, even in the fourth commandment, it's an eternal Sabbath. There's a positive aspect to that law, which, um, you know, in, in, in terms of time, one day in seven, but there's going to be no time in eternity. So, and in eternity, when we shall be like him, those who have those who have been justified and and in the future glorified they won't you won't want to sin <clears throat> you know people debate about free will and all this kind of thing there's no free will in heaven all you'll want to do is be holy you won't even want to sin. And that's what's wonderful about it. You will love God as he ought to be loved one day. You, in this world, we haven't. None of us have. We will be like him one day when we see him as he is. When we, when we die and leave this earth, go to spend eternity with him. <laughs> And it just, it, these things put this world in perspective. And the things we spend so much time worrying about, they're just not nearly as important. Not that they're not important, but they're not nearly as important as eternity. This is why I urge all of you listening to spend serious time considering the law of God. Studying through the Ten Commandments, thinking about what is different. There's you know, positive additions to the law, but they are really outward manifestations, you could say, or outward showing of our love toward God, our conformity to that moral law. And what is different about this moral law, why it is eternal, why it is different, because it is written on tables of stone. It was written on tables of stone in the Old Testament. And it speaks of looking for the verse here that I was looking for. Of it being written with the finger of God. It's just amazing. I had it in front of me a second ago, and then it's gone. Okay, I'm just gonna dig up here. What I mean by the finger of God, and it, it, it is different to the ceremonial law. 
Now, the first reference you see somewhere like the finger of God is like somewhere like Exodus 8.19. The magicians say to Pharaoh that this is the finger of God has brought judgment upon them. But it's also here talks about the tables of stone. Here we go. Exodus 31 verse 18. It was right in front of me. I just, I went blind for a second. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of, of the testimony. Tablets of stone. So it's, it's amazing too, even just that term, tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone, written in stone, written with the finger of God. The, this is set apart. And again, Exodus chapter 20 is not the first place in the moral law. It is not. You probably say, why is it there? Why is it not earlier? Well, you have to realize that in the, in the Garden of Eden before the fall, Adam and Eve had perfect knowledge of the moral law. written in their hearts. And then, when they fell into sin, Adam lived, Adam, you know, and others lived hundreds of years. Adam lived over 900 years. And then in the Lord's providence, he puts, writes down, with the finger of God, that law summarized in Ten Commandments. In a time when life expectancy had greatly shortened, and around the time when writing became necessary, uh, Francis Turton, in his volume one of his... Kind of like his Institute's in, yeah, Institutes of Lengthening Theology, classic from the 17th century, spoke about this progress of why God would have done it this way. The knowledge of God would have been passed down from generation to generation. Could you imagine if we had grandparents, great-great-great-great-grandparents who could instruct us, who, you know, who walked with God in the garden, or um, who had lived and had a deep intimate knowledge of God. But then life expectancy shortened, um, sin greatly increased. And then through Moses, you have the Pentateuch. But here we have that eternal law, that moral law, God's character, summarized in Ten Commandments. So, question 94, is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? Answer, although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, see, this is it, it basically shuts the door to anybody immediately in this large catechism question, to any possibility of anybody earning their salvation. He says, although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, yet there is great use thereof, as well common to all men, 
as peculiar either to unregenerate or to the regenerate. Basically, it has a kind of restraining effect. Even though a person may be unregenerate, the presence of a righteous standard, a righteous example, the acts as a deterrent to a certain degree, to a certain degree. And there is obviously this blessing to society in the knowledge of God. Of course, it, the more they reject it, the more it brings the wrath of God upon them. But there is great use thereof, as well as common dull men as peculiar either to unregenerate or to the regenerate. Question 95. Of what use is the moral law to all men? Answer. The moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God, of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it, and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts and lives, and to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. It's quite a bit there. We'll kind of go through it. Some things I've already touched upon. It says here in answer 95, the moral law is of use to all men to inform them, to tell them of the holy nature and will of God. They need to know the righteous standard of God. They need to know... See, if you see the standard... You know, it's like, imagine you go to college or you, or you, 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 you think you're pretty good and then you go in and you realize, whoa, that's the standard they, they think you're going to get to. So you have to work a lot harder. Now, in this case, you can't attain to the standard. You realize it's impossible. If you look at a professional sports person, you might think, well, I don't have the ability to get there. I'm never going to get there. To to inform of the holy nature and the will of God, what is demanded by God? What is the will of God? And of their duty, what they are to do, binding them to walk accordingly. So, it informs them of both the will of God and of the duty of man creating the image of God. To convince them of their disability to keep it. So, you look at the standard and you kind of go, if you're being honest with yourself, unless you want to reduce down the Ten Commandments to something that all men keep, and not accordingly as it is described in the Word of God, if you look at it honestly, you would have to agree with the Scriptures which says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And they can't keep it. It's not out of any purely intellectual thing. This is a moral revulsion, rebellion against the law of God. When Adam was made, he was able to keep the law of God, but was created mutable. As in, he could change. 
So when we look at the law of God and the perfection and, and, the, and the glory and, and the love of God in the law of God, we, we're just like, we're undone. We see how unworthy we are and we see that we, are, we do not deserve the least of his mercies. And of the sinful pollution, it says, of their nature, hearts and lives. Not just our hearts, but also our conduct. To humble them in the sense of their sin and misery. So we should realize who we are. But when viewed in light of the law and the truth of God. And it says in answer 95, and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ. A clearer sight. So the, the, the law is to show them, hey, here's, your, here's what is demanded by God. Here is his standard. Here's what's demanded by you. You cannot keep it. Give up, <laughs> basically. Don't seek to obey the law because you cannot. And then you have a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ. The law cannot save you. Another's law keeping does. And so, by looking at the law, by presenting the law in preaching or in evangelism or whatever, this is what people should see that they cannot keep it. And then they see how glorious, how perfect the obedience of Christ was on behalf of his people. Question 96. What particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate man? The moral law is of use to unregenerate men men sorry to awaken their consciences to flee from wrath to come and to drive them to Christ or upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof now i'm just looking here how far we'll get today we'll get we'll get these questions that reference the moral law anyway under our belt so hoping today's program probably about 50 to 60 minutes or something like that that's probably the what I'm aiming for now on on the programs but we'll we'll see Again, if you want me to cover any problems, and if you've got any questions, if I haven't made anything clear, please ask me at megidoradio at gmail.com. That's megidoradio at gmail.com. So, back to the use of the moral law for the unregenerate man. So, you're probably thinking, well, I'm going to share it with somebody I know, and they're not born again. What benefit it is to them? The moral law, it says, is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences 
So they have a conscience, you see. When you are applying the law of God, you're really pointing out something that is being suppressed by them, their conscience. They haven't created an image of God, and so there's two things, even apart from the word of God, that should convict them and make them realize that they're in rebellion against God. The creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, and also what is within them, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they're without excuse. And even more so with the law of God. So, it's to awaken their conscience to see that they're, and to accept that they've been creating the image of God and, and the duties that are required of them, they can't keep them and another one has in their place. To flee from the wrath to come. So, they should see the trouble they're in. And in the same way that you're only going to flee from a burning building if you realize that it is on fire and there's danger. And to drive them to Christ so that the law of God should not be seen as a savior or something that we ever take comfort in other than Here's the character of God. We, we can't take character in obeying it because we fall short of that standard. But we can take comfort in the fact that that standard was met in another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ or upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin, and leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. So, there's also another purpose, even in evangelism. Now, we want people to be saved, of course. That's what we want. We're not saying, oh, well, we're going out there to pour coals of fire upon people's heads who won't repent. But there's going to be, an, to an extent, that is what happens says in Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Curses everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Curses everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And this is, this moral law is still there. Now, upon their continuance in this state, in unrepentance, in, in, in hardness of sin, in being a slave to sin and the way of sin, they don't have, it leaves them inexcusable. And under the curse thereof. So the, if you're listening to this, and the more times you have heard the gospel, and you have not turned to God. The more you know of the law of God, the more you know of the Ten Commandments, the more you know of the Bible, the more you know of Christ's keeping of the law, and the more you trample that underfoot, the worse hell will be. Because what have you done? You've treated Jesus Christ as an unholy thing. You've treated him as an object of disdain by not trusting in him. 
You've said, well, you have died in the place of sinners, but I want nothing to do with that. I want to rule my own way. I am king of my own castle. You are really following the way of the devil. And if you do not turn to Christ, friend, that is why well, you are your child of the devil. Now, none of us think oh, I'm going out to you know to worship the devil or anything else like that. I was into some strange things in music years ago, but it's basically about doing what you want rather than submitting to the will of your creator and maker. And the more you see the law of God, the more it leaves you inexcusable. Because you know, the more you see it, at least you should, you cannot keep it. And you're in trouble. If you're ever in any way trusting in your own works. Our greatest deeds, our most noble acts are but filthy rags before God. They are a stench before God because of what is because of how wonderful God is and how wonderful is wonderful a savior Jesus is. Question 97. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? To the regenerate. Although the answer Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so they're not under covenant of works, they're not under curse of that, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, yet because the general use is thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead, and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness, and to express the same in their greater care, to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. So let's go through that. There's a lot there. Question 97, and probably going to finish question 98. Lord willing. So, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Those who are born again, those who are regenerated of the Spirit of God, those with spiritual life, those who are in Christ. You might think, what what, what special use is there for them? I mean, okay, we, we, we've been saved. We don't need the law anymore, do we? You might ask. You do. Although they are they that are regenerate, the, the, the answer says, and believe in Christ, be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, no longer under the curse, no longer say, I need to keep the law perfectly in order to be acceptable before God, because that was the case, none of us would pray, none of us would do anything, because we, we, we can't serve that way. We, we seek to serve that way. It's not that we just say, well, I'm, I'll just... Well, I can't serve perfectly, so I'm not, I'm not barely going to try. That's not, that's not what you should take away from it at all. We should seek for perfect obedience, living idealistically. But we should live realistically also, realizing we won't. 
and seeking God's forgiveness where we fail. So as thereby they are neither justified, it says here in this answer, they are neither justified nor condemned, so thereby, justified nor condemned, by their own keeping of the law. Yet besides the general use thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for its fulfilling of it. It just shows you how much they depend upon him because the more they look at it, the more they're what thankful. Where they're grateful, the more they will praise God and to show them how much they have bound to Christ for his fulfilling of it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead. So the more we study the law as believers in Jesus Christ, the more we see how much Christ endured for us. So it's important that we do continue. We must study, continue to study the law. And by the way, the more we continue to study the law, the more we continue to study and know of God and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness. This should make us see how much and more of what Christ endured on our behalf, and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. So this is no longer what will condemn us or justify us, because it's based upon the work of another Lord Jesus Christ, but it is the rule of life. This is still the standard we used to follow. But it is not the basis on which we come before God and are acceptable before God. And praise God for that. Because if it ever was, none of us could come before God. Question 98. Where is the moral law Summarily comprehended. Summarily comprehended. The moral law answer, it says here, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Basically, su summarily. Uh, summarized down, you could say. Think of it another way like that. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, which are delivered by the voice of God upon Mount Sinai and written by him in two tables of stone and are recorded in in the twelve in the twentieth chapter of Exodus. The four first commandments containing our duty to God, and the other six our duty to men. So ninety-eight, let's go through this. Um It is, sum it is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, summarized down, we've talked about that earlier, which are delivered by the voice of God upon Mount Sinai and written by God in, in ten tables of stone. That's what makes them different and stand out from other commandments given in the Pentateuch. And are recorded in the 20th chapter of Exodus. The first four commandments containing our duty to God, we've talked about earlier as well, First four summarizing down duty to God, and the other six are duty to man. So, yeah, a lot of that uh, has been, I said earlier, and love toward God. First table of the law, love toward man in the second table of the law. Now, I'm just wondering whether to... 
keep going. Yeah, I'll try and get through a number of these because a number of these kind of cross over to a lot of the things I've already kind of covered. Question 99. What rules are to be observed for the first, for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? Answer, for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. Number one, that the law is perfect and bindeth everyone to full conformity in the whole man unto the righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever, so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. Perfection of the law, basically. Number two of the rules to be observed. That it is spiritual and so reacheth the understanding, will, affections, and all the powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures. Number three, that one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. So the, this law is all connected with each other, basically. Number four, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. We talked about this earlier with um, thou shall not thou shall not commit murder or thou shall not kill. Contrary is commanded. Um, it's all summarized into that command. Preserving life. So rule number four, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is, is annexed, the contrary promise is included. So if there's a blessing added on say for example those who on your father and your mother it's a blessing included with that well there's a cursing included for those who don't so that's how they're summarized and then number five then that what god forbids is at no time to be done what he commands is always our duty and yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. So so what he's commanded, we were to do it. Uh, we're never allowed to sin, basically. And yet every particular duty, every particular duty, whatever that is, not to be done at all times, specific duties at different times. And wisdom guides us in these things. Rule 6, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions and appearances thereof, provocations thereunto. So, rule 6 there again, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded. 
together with all the causes and means, occasions, and operations thereof, and provocations thereon too. So, you know, not trying to Sometimes you can think of, well, this particular sin isn't dealt with in the Bible or something like that. Well, that fits in with a group. Now, we might make the ridiculous argument or something like that about you know, pornography or something like that, but that's a violation of, for example, uh, you should not commit adultery. Sins of that particular group. Now, what were we on? Number seven. Yeah, I think it's rule seven. That what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided and performed by others according to the duty of their places. So, we shouldn't other people are bound to keep the law of God as well and we should not be the reason why they don't I suppose is another way of saying that uh, rule 8 that in what is commanded to others we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them and to take heed of part of partaking with others in what is forbidden them we should at all times promote the law of God, and that is for, <laughs> I particularly think of supposed Christian politicians in, you know, especially in this part of the world, um, who think, seem to think and act like the law of God doesn't matter when they're in government. Um, they're bound to keep the law, and they're bound to promote the keeping of the law in others. We can't force anybody else to do anything. But there should be a promotion of righteousness wherever possible, in whatever sphere we find ourselves in. Question 100. I think we'll just leave it here, actually. Question 100. What special things are we to consider in the Ten Commandments? We are to consider in the Ten Commandments the preface the substance of the commandments themselves and to, and to several reasons and next to them for the more to enforce them. So we'll come back to question 100 next time and go through the Ten Commandments, you know. Probably spend a bit of time on that at some stage in the future. Might even be the next program, just depends on what comes up in the news. Again, if you have something you would like me to cover, answer, whatever, it doesn't have to be a huge topic or anything like that. You can, uh, it might be critique of a video or whatever else. Uh, just a verse to to have. I printed off a lot of these, uh, uh, had a lot of these verses here, but the 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 moral law is eternal. The ceremonial law with, with the feast days and everything else is not eternal. For example, in Amos 5, 21 and 22, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not save your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
nor will regard your fatted peace offerings. Because this is because as Samuel said in First Samuel fifteen twenty two, has the Lord has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and the head, and and to heed, than the fat of rams. So. The Ten Commandments is not something that goes away. It's one of the reasons why Sabbath day is important. And we don't understand this well in the modern church. So I encourage you to read it. One book I always say to get, if you want to dig more into this, apart from the Westminster Larger Catechism, Thomas Watson, The Ten Commandments, is particularly excellent, but there's other things written on it as well. The Puritans were really good on the Ten Commandments. Hopefully this has been a blessing to your soul. Feel free to email me, Miguel Radio at gmail.com. This has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.